you are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for Throwback Tuesday, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. If you're a new listener, thanks for giving our podcast a shot. Those are the regular listeners. As always, glad to have you on board. We've got a jam-packed episode coming your way. Going to kick off our series revisiting each of the past five draft classes for the Seahawks, plus a close look at the running back position heading into the offseason. Let's get started. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. As one of the consequences of not having any fans in the stands last season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Seahawks did not induct a new member, a 13th member, to their exclusive ring of honor. According to team president Chuck Arnold, however, that is expected to change during the 2021 season. Obviously, this rides on what the pandemic looks like once we get to the end of the summer and teams get to training camp. Baseball is going to have another opportunity here to get some fans into the stands as they get ready to start their season. We are making progress with vaccines. So there is hope in league circles that at least part capacity is going to happen in every single NFL stadium, if not fully jam-packed stadiums. We'll just have to see what happens. But they're hoping to induct a new member next season with fans in the stands to be able to enjoy the ceremony. And, of course, that leads to the discussion, Rob, Who's going to be that next person inducted into the ring of honor? The last one was Paul Allen, the late Paul Allen, in 2019 became the honorary 12th member of the ring of honor. There are a number of worthy candidates. Who jumps out to you as maybe the most notable that should be inducted next season? Well, it's a hard question, Corbin, and which is a good thing. That's a hard question because it kind of speaks to just the, you know, the the pride and the history that is the, the Seattle Seahawks as a as a franchise. As you mentioned, Paul Allen, what was the latest inductee in, in 2019? It had been five years after um, that the Hall of Famer Walter Jones um, was the, the last inductee. Before that, there there's a total of twelve of them, um, and, and so just to kind of uh, review for for folk, for folks out there. Just so that they know who these uh, who these members are, um, it would be in alphabetical order. It would be the cornerback Dave Brown, uh, the the safety Kenny Easley, the defensive end Jacob Green, the the radio announcer, the great Pete, the late great Pete Gross. Uh, uh, I mentioned Walter Jones, court another late great uh, defensive tackle court in the Hall of Famer Cortez Kennedy, um, the late great head coach Chuck Knox, Dave Craig, Steve Largent, Kurt Warner, Jim Zorn, and then as we mentioned uh, the most recent inductee is the late great owner Paul Allen. Um, I, you know, I, I look at that list and I, I think of you know you could mention a guy like a like a Mike Holmgren. You could mention a guy like a Matt Hasselbeck. To me, those, those are two guys that, that immediately jump to the the forefront in this conversation, just because we all know as a head coach and a quarterback they get that much more attention. But to me, when when I think about the the iconic Seahawks, uh, one of the guys that, that immediately jumps out to me in Seattle's Super. Super Bowl glory runs would be the Legion of Boom and all of the different members that that represents. And I think that 
I think of Cam Chancellor. I think of the thunderous hits that, that he provided throughout his career. I think of the leadership that, that he provided on and off the field. I think of the fact that you still see him connected with the franchise and you know not leaving um, as, un, as, a, as a free agent or any other kind of, uh, of the drama that we've seen with, with some of the other players or, or, or coaches or, or personalities associated with the team. To me, he is one of those guys who just kind of screams Seahawk Ring of Honor. And so to me, he would be the player or that are at least the, the the latest guy that I would be mentioning, I think has a real chance to be, if not the the favorite to be, who Chuck Arnold was mentioning as, as a possible inductee this fall, then I think the Cam Chancellor certainly will be on the short list waiting soon. Yeah, if you're looking at recent players, Chancellor obviously is the first member of the Legion of Boom that would have an opportunity because he's now been out of the NFL for three years. Earl Thomas isn't on a roster, but I don't think Earl Thomas is going to be going into the Ring of Honor this quickly with the way things ended when he left the Seahawks and signed with the Ravens in free agency. For me, I've got to start off with Joan Ash, the pride of the Seahawks' interior defensive line in the 1980s, and then obviously he coupled up with Cortez Kennedy at the end of his career as well, but he played in 218 games for the Seahawks, 1984, seven sacks, over 80 tackles. He had over 80 tackles three different times as a defensive tackle. That is incredible. He was a first-team All-Pro selection that year, made the Pro Bowl. It's really crazy to me that he never made another Pro Bowl roster when you looked at the fact that he played in 16 games basically every season that he was with the Seahawks. He was a beacon of durability and toughness. He had nearly 800 tackles in his career, 779 to be exact, 47 and a half sacks. He had a career high nine of them in 1985. So this guy could rush the passer, had multiple seasons with seven plus sacks, could get in the backfield. If we had tackle for loss numbers, he certainly would have staggering numbers in that regard. He's the franchise's all-time leader in blocked kicks, and field goals with 10 of them. So this guy could do a little bit of everything. And he was an undrafted player at 278 pounds. He was an undersized prospect coming out of Boston College, didn't get drafted, and all he did was a couple years into the league become a starter for the Seahawks, and he really was one of the focal points of that defense. And again, I look at him and K.J. Wright. To me, they are the two most underrated players, underappreciated players in Seahawks history on defense because they both put up really good numbers. They were starters, really good starters for a long time, and yet the two of them have combined for one Pro Bowl apiece. I think that it would be a strong gesture for Joe Nash, who was one of the most underappreciated players ever to wear a Seahawks uniform, to put his jersey number up in the rafters. Uh, sir, you just sold me. I mean, I, I'm absolutely a fan of Joe Nash was growing up. I thought that he was one of the uh, most iconic Seahawks for all the different reasons that you just provide. Being an undrafted free agent, um, being a guy that had to kind of scratch and claw his way through there, never really got much uh, attention, as you mentioned, one Pro Bowl, uh, despite having all of those incredible numbers um, throughout his career. And just the picture of durability, the picture of consistency, of reliability. You know, it's funny. I, I just in the last couple of weeks, I've had some conversations with some of the Hall of Fame voters. And, you know, they always kind of talk about how uh, every year they have to kind of get up there and they have to to speak to the other Hall of Fame voters and basically uh, try to convince them that their candidate should be the one who gets into the Hall of Fame. I think that you just did uh, Joe Nash a great service and, and just kind of uh, replaying some of the different highlights uh, of his fantastic career in the Seahawks. I 100% agree with you. 
in, in terms of the, the kind of listing him along with KJ Wright as being two just really truly great Seahawks on and off the field who deserve to be acknowledged at least in some way. While I think that it would be it would feel a little bit kind of random at this point, uh, considering how long ago Joe Nash retired. At the same time, let me be clear: I absolutely believe that Joe Nash deserves to have that type of recognition, as I do with Cam Chancellor, and has a, and as I do with one other guy along the line of scrimmage, who just because of the nature of his position, I think has been underrated in a lot of people's eyes for a long time, and kind of the opposite of Joe Nash. Whereas with Joe Nash, to me, the timing would feel a little bit odd. Although again. I think that is very much justifiable that Joe Nash could be on the ring of honor. To me, Steve Hutchinson and the fact that, that he was uh, elected a year ago into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, um, I, to me, he is one that, that makes a lot of sense. The fact that he is working with the Seahawks now, um, being able to help them evaluate their, their interior offensive linemen. Um, from the stands, Corbin, I, I watched uh, Steve Hutchinson down there in the pit in the Senior Bowl, um, evaluating guys just like Damian Lewis, of course, who the Seahawks found in the third round playing that same guard position. I'll be on the right side rather than the left guard position that Steve Hutchinson played for such an incredible uh, amount of years in Seattle as well as in Minnesota for at such a high level. Um, but to me, he is another one of those players that because of just how elite he was on the field, his contributions to the franchise on and off the field as well are one of the reasons why I think that he also could be a strong candidate to hear his uh, or to see his name be unveiled in the latest the Seahawks ring of honor. So I would go to bat for Joe Nash, the other player that I think absolutely belongs in the ring of honor. And this is maybe another guy that you look at his Hall of Fame candidacy to this point. Sean Alexander has not been able to get to the finalist threshold. He's been a semifinalist several times, but he's never been able to reach one of the top 25 finalists for the Hall of Fame. And the longer he gets away from his career, the more unlikely it seems that he's ever going to get into Canton. But we're talking about a guy that's one of only eight running backs ever with five straight seasons of 1,100 rushing yards and 10 or more rushing touchdowns. The other seven are all in the Hall of Fame. It at least gives Sean Alexander his due by putting the number 37 up into the bleachers. I'd like to see him retire his number as well. I know that Quandre Diggs is sporting it well for the Seahawks right now, but you're talking about one of the best players in franchise history that just continues to get slighted with the phenomenal career that he had in Seattle. I would like to see the organization, when you consider how much of an impact he had off the field as well as being the only MVP in Seahawks history, get his jersey number up in the rafters, put him up there with Walter Jones, who blocked for him during his career. He should be one of the Seahawks from that really dominant team that made the Super Bowl in 2005 that absolutely is immortalized in the ring of honor. Coming up next in the second quarter, it's Throwback Tuesday. We're going to begin our series revisiting all of the Seahawks' last five draft classes. We're going to zoom back to 2016, have a few members of that draft class that are still in the league, one of those players still with the Seattle Seahawks currently. We're going to look back at all the selections, the ones that panned out, the ones that didn't pan out so much. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. Bet online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. 
real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. Bet online as you cover for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tuesday edition. I'm Corbin Smith, joined by my co-host, Rob Rang. February is Black History Month, and the Locked On Podcast Network is honoring the challenges and success of black men and women in sports with a new series called Locked On Presents More Than the Game. This week, Candace Cooper of Locked On Tar Heels and Eric Ayala of Locked On Women's Basketball discuss the opportunities and challenges that come with being a black woman in sports. Subscribe to the Locked On Presents podcast feed on the radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Throwback Tuesday, and it's crazy to think about this, Rob. We're still a little over two months away from the draft, but you and I both know once the new league year gets here in the middle of March, free agency heats up, you turn around, and suddenly it's draft weekend, and the Seahawks eventually will be on the clock. Only one pick the first three days, so it's going to be a kind of boring first couple days for Seahawks fans. But nonetheless, here over the next five weeks, we're going to be revisiting each of the last five draft classes that John Schneider and the Seahawks have had. So we're going to go back in our time machine to 2016 after how long 2020 lasted. It feels like 2016 was an entire lifetime ago. But John Schneider and the Seahawks made 10 selections that year, and it started with their first rounder, Jermaine Effetti, who started four seasons at tackle, was a guard his rookie season, but four years as a starter, on the Seahawks' offensive line. Obviously, he was heavily scrutinized. He was criticized during his time. He was a player that kind of became a butt of jokes for some fans with the penalties that he had. But I think when we look back at his time with Seattle, we will see that this is a player that improved in all four seasons, in particular his last season with the team, working with coach Mike Solari. We saw this player progress as his time in Seattle unfolded. And though the team didn't re-sign him, I think compared to some of their other first-round picks in the Schneider era, Afedi ended up panning out fairly decent. Yeah, I mean, especially considering he was the you know the thirty-first overall um, you know selection of of the draft itself, um, and this was a, a team that you know back in twenty sixteen, of course, similar to it is now, they they were struggling to protect Russell Wilson. They got a guy who in Jermaine Effetti, who, as you mentioned, initially played at the at the guard position, slid outside to play tackle. Um, he wound up being an incredibly durable uh, player for the Seahawks. Now, it, while his consistency uh, may have waned significantly his focus at times because he was it seemed like every other game that he was getting called for a false start or for a holding penalty and it always seemed like that they were at the you know at the worst times um, from a Seahawk perspective at, at the same time it, it really kind of does demonstrate just that how much of a um, you know throwing darts at the dartboard the NFL draft can be a little bit and when you consider the fact that the Fetty even after not being re-signed by Seattle wound up signing with Chicago, wound up becoming a starter back at guard again for the Seahawks. You're, you're talking about a guy who was drafted in the first round that has, in fact, been a starter each of the five years in which he has been in the NFL. And that in itself is, is a significant uh, accomplishment. Um, as, as you mentioned in, in starting this off, the Seahawks drafted 10 players that year, only one of whom is still with the team. 
Now, as I mentioned with the Fetty, he was a starter with the Chicago Bears and several other players that Seattle drafted that year. CJ Procise in the third round at 90th overall. Nick Vanette, tight end, uh, 94th overall. Riso Diombo, 97th. And then Quentin Jefferson, 147th, all the way in the fifth round. All of them have wound up starting at least once um, in the NFL. And so, again, this is a, a better collection of talent in terms of football players than they are in terms of Seahawks. The only one who actually is still with the Seahawks on their front on the roster at this point is the second round selection, Jaron Reed, a, a defensive tackle from Alabama at the time, who I know that Seattle had on their kind of short list um, for their late first round selection if, if the Fetty had not been on the board. So for Seattle to be able to get him at 49th overall, they felt really good about it at the time. Obviously, they feel that much better considering he's one of the few guys on this roster that has generated a second contract with the team. 22 sacks in his five seasons with the Seahawks, 10 and a half of those coming in 2018. He had six and a half last year. So Jaron Reed has clearly been the diamond of this 2016 draft class. I think you and I would both agree a guy that's really been a starter all five seasons in Seattle. That's a pretty darn good value at pick number 49. They hit on Jaron Reed. He's had some inconsistencies as a pass rusher, but he's been a consistent starter. He's been durable. He's played in a lot of games for them since they drafted him out of Alabama. The rest of this draft class, though, for the most part, was pretty underwhelming. You mentioned those three third-rounders that the Seahawks had in C.J. Procise, Nick Vanette, and Reese Odiambo. Procise tantalized with his talent. We saw what he could do when he was healthy. The problem is he was never healthy during his time with the Seahawks and didn't play in a lot of games. He missed more games than he played in during his time with the Seahawks. And so he just wasn't able to really become the impact running back that I think Pete Carroll and John Schneider thought that he could be with his receiving skills, coupled with his running skills, his size, his athleticism. He just couldn't put it together because he couldn't stay off the injury list. Nick Vanette was just kind of a guy. He was a reserve tight end that never really made much of an impact for this team. They did turn a fifth round pick they acquired from him into Quandre Diggs. So that's something that was meaningful that came from his draft selection. Reese Odiambo just played 16 games. He played some guard. He played some tackle. He battled penalty issues, really struggled with his opportunities. So that was another offensive line pick in the first three rounds that didn't pan out. To me, if you're looking for the second best selection in this draft class, Jermaine Effetti maybe gets the nod just because he has started so many games. But Quentin Jefferson has been really darn good the last three seasons. He got off to a slow start in his career. In fact, the Seahawks cut him at one point, and he was on the Rams practice squad before eventually finding his way back to Seattle. And He took advantage of that second opportunity. He's now got 10.5 sacks in his career. He's become a respectable rotational defensive lineman that can play end. He can play inside at tackle when needed has played in 55 games, was on a really good Buffalo Bills team this past season that got to the AFC Championship game, had a strong first year with their team. And so Jefferson was a guy that really turned things around late in his tenure with the Seahawks. He turned it into a contract with another team. Overall, that's a pretty successful fifth-round pick. And even Alex Collins, the other fifth-rounder they had in that draft class, had a couple of decent seasons in Baltimore, and he gave the Seahawks some good snaps in a few games last year. So they had some players on day three that certainly have had decent careers. They've lasted longer than most fifth, sixth, and seventh round picks, but no real game changers aside from Jaron Reed in this draft class. 
Yeah, and that's the obviously the, the knock on it is that you have 10 draft selections and only one of them is still on your roster. Uh, maybe Alex Collins, if you want to include him as, as being your roster too, even though he has spent, as you mentioned, some time in, in, in Baltimore and was um, not on, on any NFL roster for, for uh, portions of the last couple of years. But still, I don't care, regardless of whatever your barometer is for success, you know, having one of the players um, from your, your 10-man uh, draft class that is still on your roster five years later, um, that that's not going to be the greatest uh, example of success. But again, one of the things I would focus in on is the fact that we have had so many of these players wind up playing elsewhere. I mean, Nick Vanette has has wound up playing for the, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and then when you look at the, the Seattle's last selections, Joey Hunt, the, the, the center from TCU, I mean, he had to work his way into Seattle's starting rotation. He is now part of the Indianapolis Colts as well. So he is still out there. We talked about Alex Collins. You know, Kenny Lawler, the wide receiver from California just never was able to, to retain his speed once Seattle tried to add a little bit more weight to him. He did have great body control and, and sticky hands, and so he was a very effective receiver, but he just didn't have that, that game-breaking ability that Seattle has been looking for, for for several years now to be able to give themselves a, you know an, another quality target for Russell Wilson. And the same thing with the running back, Zach Brooks from Clemson. Similar to the way that Seattle has kind of rolled the dice on some running backs here uh, lately uh, from the University of Miami, you did the same thing with Clemson. There's just so much talent coming through those programs that you want to roll the dice on a late round draft pick at the running back and, and see if you might be able to, um, you know, to, to catch a superstar the way that they did a year later um, in the seventh round section, Chris Carson out of Oklahoma State. So to me, this was a solid draft class. It's not one that contributed a lot to Seattle's success on the field. Um, you know, a lot of these players that wound up uh, going elsewhere, but finding some time in the NFL for, for other clubs. Again, Jaron Reed is, is your superstar at this point. You, you had a good player in, in Quentin Jefferson in the fifth round. Um, you really wish that CJ Procise would have been able to take advantage of his physical gifts. To me, he was the, the game changer in this group that could have t- turned an average draft class into a very good one if he just would have been able to stay healthy and if Jermaine Effetti would have been just able uh, to play with a little bit more consistency. But to me, there, this is a it was a quality class. It just was not the one that it should have it should have been for the Seahawks and and again that to me is why it's a classic draft a classic example of of what we're talking about when you say that the draft is basically one big uh or one big game chance the 2016 Seahawks draft is a perfect example of that yeah you've still got seven of these players playing in the NFL six of them with other teams but that does tell you that they drafted players that had staying power. The fact they're still on NFL rosters. Rizzo Diambo was on a roster until 2018. And so the, each of their first eight picks was able to be in the league for at least three seasons. So from that standpoint, it looks like a decent class. They just didn't get many contributions on the field from most of these guys in Seahawks uniforms. And so from that perspective, not one of John Schneider's better classes to me. It's a C-minus class. Jaron Reed being a really solid player in the middle, getting four years of starter productivity out of Jermaine Effetti, and, of course, Quentin Jefferson turning his career around. Those three players ended up giving this draft class a passing grade in my mind. But, unfortunately, there were too many players like C.J. Procise that you just got to wonder what if, if he just could have stayed healthy, what kind of an impact that he might have had on the Seahawks and their ability to both run the football and uh, throw the football with his receiving ability, moving around the formation, all that stuff. 
Unfortunately, it just did not pan out during his time in Seattle. We come back in the third quarter. We're going to shift gears to our position-by-position breakdown series. We've already looked at defensive tackles. We're not going to go to the offensive side of the football. A lot of discussions revolving around the running back position with Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde set to hit free agency. So we're going to look at Seattle's backfield depth and maybe some possible players in free agency in the draft that could be brought in to bolster that group moving into the 2021 season. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody and are reliably low. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The RockAuto.com catalog is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, and all the parts are available for your vehicle. Choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked in in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This is your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Rob Rang on our Tuesday episode. NFL analyst Brian Peacock and former NFL scout Matt Williamson host Locked On's Peacock and Williamson every Monday through Friday. Brian and Matt give you the national perspective all around the NFL, covering all the latest news and insight on every game, team, and move around the NFL. Get your picks, previews, and much more every weekday with the Peacock and Williamson podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, going to be continuing to break down the Seahawks roster position by position. We kicked off the series last week, Rob, with defensive tackles. We're now going to go to my bread and butter, the running back position. And the Seahawks have a lot of questions that they need to answer here in the next several weeks back there because Chris Carson, who's been the rock back there the last three seasons, He had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons in 2018-2019 last year. Overall production was down, but still averaged almost five yards per carry. Improved as a receiver, put up gaudy numbers, catching the football out of the backfield. Has really improved in that area every season of his career. He's hitting free agency, and so is fellow veteran Carlos Hyde. So both those players have an opportunity to test free agency and see if other teams will be willing to offer up some money for him. Carson, in particular, is going to be one of the more fascinating free agents to watch as the Seahawks gear up for this new season, what the market is going to look like for him, given his injury history, as well as the fact that when he's been healthy, he's been one of the NFL's most productive players. I'm going to be very curious to see how other teams view him once free agency starts. And really, he is the domino that's going to set everything in motion for this backfield. If he's re-signed, the Seahawks don't have to do a lot of they don't have to make a lot of moves to supplement this backfield. But if he's gone, now you got to figure out who's going to be your number one running back. Is he already on the roster, or do you need to go outside in free agency of the draft to find that player? 
Yeah, I think that you described it well by just saying a domino. I mean, he. I think they, that Chris Carson is going to be the, the, the huge domino for the Seahawks this offseason. Um, you know, I, I would argue that, that Shaquille Griffin is actually every bit as good of a player at the cornerback position in Seattle, needs to strongly consider what they're going to do with him. Um, but but Chris Carson, on the other hand, I, I think that really is kind of, um, you know, the, the guy who sets the table for, for Russ Wilson to cook, you know, and so everybody who wants to make that, that, that have that conversation about you know, Russell Wilson and how great of a passer he is. It, part of the reason why he is a great passer is for the exact reason that you mentioned before, Corbin, is that that the Chris Carson did make significant improvement as a receiver, as a as a as a pass blocker, um, as well as what he brings to the table as, as a running as a running back, and, and just his physicality um, and his competitiveness to me just absolutely screams Seahawks. I think that's why they're going to really try to do their best to be able to bring him back. But at the same time, when you look at all of the all of the running backs who are available in free agency this year, and there are some very good ones, um, at, at the same time, I don't know if there's any that are likely to be as good as Carson at a relatively decent price point. If you are willing to spend a whole bunch of money, then, then Aaron Jones, who simply led the NFL in touchdowns a couple of years ago uh, from Green Bay, would, would definitely be a back that's going to get a lot of attention. Um, but because of the durability questions that, that are facing Chris Carson, that are facing a guy like Todd Gurley, that are facing a guy like Marlon Mack from the Colts, all three of them who have shown the ability to put an offense on their shoulders and be able to kind of, you know, carry them along. I think that that's going to create a lot of interest from NFL teams, but it's going to be fascinating to see what, which teams are going to be out there going to be willing to throw some money at these players. So yeah, if Seattle uh, decides that they are unable to, to retain Chris Carson, then I, I think that their draft is going to be very much geared towards trying to make sure that they have somebody who is going to be able to challenge Rashad Penny as being the you know the, their bell cow running back because you have all kinds of concerns about can Penny hold up in, in that regard. And if you are able to bring Chris Carson back, well then yeah, your your four draft selections that you have, as well as any other pre, any other moves that you plan to make in free agency or the draft, just give you so many more options. Just because we know as long as Pete Carroll is calling the shots in Seattle, then the running game is going to be critically important. And I think when you look at Carson, I've been saying this all along, from what I've been told, if his price point falls in that 6 to $7 million per year range, I think the Seahawks would be more than happy to bring Chris Carson back because Pete Carroll loves Chris Carson. He wants to have him back in the backfield. It's just with their current cap situation, they are not in a position where they can overspend on a running back. And in their estimation, anything above $8 million per year is probably going to be overspending for the player. That's not to say it couldn't happen, but we're just going to have to see what other teams value him at and how much money they're going to have to spend. Every team is hurting because the salary cap is going down this year from COVID-19 and not having fans in the stands. And so it's going to be interesting to see what teams are going to be willing to pay, especially at a position like running back that's already been devalued with teams throwing the football more are players like Carson going to be able to get anywhere close to what is deemed a market deal this offseason? We just don't know. Nobody knows. And so that's going to be a true 50-50 proposition for the Seahawks. And if he's not re-signed, it opens the door for Carlos Hyde potentially to come back. I don't think if Carson's re-signed that Hyde's going to be back. I don't see it. I don't envision a scenario where both of those players are back with a healthy Rashad Penny. 
I think one of the big reasons Hyde was signed last year to begin with is because the Seahawks knew Rashad Penny was going to miss at least half the season before he returned from his torn ACL. He missed all but three games. So the decision to bring in Hyde ended up being a a wise investment, even if his overall production wasn't great and he missed six games himself due to injury. He was able to give him a lift in a handful of games when Carson was banked up, and ultimately that proved to be worth the deal that they gave him to provide insurance in the backfield. When it's all said and done, I've been saying this for weeks, I think when you look at the players that they have, Rashad Penny, DJ Dallas, Travis Homer, if you bring back Alex Collins on a cheap one-year deal, he ran well in three games for them last year. They've got a lot of different style running backs that they can just keep that group healthy and they improve the blockers in front of them, go out and get a marquee guard or a marquee center to help with opening up run lanes. That that can be a very respectable running back group, but this does seem like if Carson's gone, that this is going to be a year they're going to have to explore either signing one in free agency Maybe somebody like Leonard Fournette at the right price might be worth looking at, especially with how he played in the playoffs, or a draft pick. For me in particular, obviously it would be nice to see Najee Harris fall to the second round and the Seahawks have a chance at getting him because I love the way that he runs at 230 pounds. But I don't see Harris being available when the Seahawks are on the board. Maybe you can get somebody like Javante Williams out of North Carolina. The, The running back that I really like, is Sermon out of Ohio State. And I know there are some question marks about durability. He's only been the starter for roughly half a season for Ohio State. He struggled to get reps when he was at Oklahoma because the talent had the backfield. But at 213 pounds, he runs hard. He breaks tackles. He's got that extra gear that some of these other top backs don't have. And it just feels like there's a lot of untapped potential there. He's also very good at ball security. I just see a lot of things that really excite me in Seattle's system, and he hasn't gotten a lot of wear and tear because he didn't have a ton of carries in college. And so Sermon would be a guy in the middle rounds that, to me, would make a lot of sense to team up with Rashad Penny, DJ Dallas, and Travis Homer. This is under the assumption that you don't have Chris Carson back. If you re-sign Carson, then suddenly there just isn't the need to go out and get a player like Sermon. But he is probably the player middle rounds that intrigues me the most in terms of upside and scheme fit. No, I I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's a lot of things about Trey Sermon that really does fit in very well with Seattle. And and you kind of touched upon it. You know, the fact that he has transferred from Oklahoma to Ohio State, to me, that that is a a running back that is very confident in his ability. He wasn't transferring from Oklahoma to, you know, some small school program. I mean, he was looking to to compete in a national championship, recognizing that that, the J.K. Dobbins, the great Ohio State running back, had had left. And so there was going to be a potential opportunity there to start before a national title contending team uh, to me again that that kind of screams Seahawks with, with how much they they value competitiveness at the same time you also touched upon his his lack of durability that's got to be a concern you know in, in that national championship game against Alabama Trey Sermon lasted one play um, you know, where before he got hurt and, and was off the field, and you saw the impact that that had on the Ohio State Buckeyes. So it's both acknowledging Sermon's talent as well as the fact that he t- 
too, has struggled with durability, and that's something that Seattle is going to have to be concerned about. But in terms of his size and his speed and his uh, his power, I think that he makes some sense. There's another back uh, from the Big Ten, Stevie Scott the third um, from from Indiana, who I, I think is kind of an underrated back. He, he's a big back. I mean, this is a guy who's um, you know who's six foot six foot one, two hundred and thirty pounds, a kind of a classic downhill running back. Reminds me a little bit of another Indiana Hoosier, Jordan Howard, um, is a guy that can be that kind of big bell cow in between the tackles um, that you might want to have to kind of pair with a Rashad Penny. Um, the other back that's from out this way that is intriguing to me um, from the collegiate level would be Jamar Jefferson um, from Oregon State. He's 5'9", but he's 217 pounds. Um, and so to me, this is kind of that, that, that round ball of clay that you like at the running back. He just bounces off of contact very well. He doesn't have the, the, the height that the Seahawks have generally seemed to prefer at the running back position. Uh, but to me, this is a really good running back that is likely to be available on day three. And that's so those are some of the draft guys out there. If you if the Seahawks had to kind of focus in on, on the free agent standpoint, because I, I agree with you. I think that if if they're able to retain Carson, then Carlos Hyde probably is going elsewhere. And if they do not bring back Carson, I think the Hyde has a chance. I also think that some of the younger backs who play a similar kind of game, I, I mentioned uh, um, Aaron Jones from, from Green Bay, his partner in crime, Jamal Williams. Um, former BYU back is a, is a physical back. who has got good hands out of the backfield. He might make some sense from Green Bay. James Conner and everything that he has overcome from Pittsburgh, he may not get the big financial uh, you know, windfall that he's expecting. So he might be one of those backs that's kind of waiting on the outside, looking, uh, looking to get in. And, and so he might be somebody that Seattle is able to, to lure over on a relatively cheap deal as well. When it all comes down to it, based on what I've heard, again, I've been mentioning 50-50. I know some of our listeners haven't appreciated that because they're like, can you just make a prediction? Well, I will give you my prediction right now. This is not based on what I've talked to as far as sources are concerned, but I I think that Chris Carson will be sporting another uniform next year. Even though I have my reservations about what the market is going to look like, I just get a sense that the Seahawks are going to have some bigger fish that they are going to want to fry. And ultimately the money's just not going to line up. I think there'll be enough teams that are interested in a productive back like Chris Carson, that they're going to be willing to pay the money on a two, maybe three year deal to get him onto their team. And so I think the Seahawks will move forward without Chris Carson. That begs the question what route they go to try to replace his production. They they still are high on Rashad Penny. They still believe in him. DJ Dallas is a player that really flashed in his small uh, appearances as a starter last year. They loved what they saw in training camp. So those two by themselves can be a nice one-two punch with different skill sets. To me, ideally, if you aren't going to have Chris Carson back, maybe you do bring back Carlos Hyde, another one-year deal. But I think then – Getting a running back in the draft is something that is going to be critical. I'm not going out and spending money on another veteran free agent running back when I can go get a young guy that's under club control for the next four years. And I think this class is good enough. It's not the best running back class I've seen, but there's enough talent that should be available in the middle rounds, even with limited number of picks, that the Seahawks should be able to find a player that they can plug in and he can contribute right away, potentially be a future starter if Rashad Penny proves that he cannot be that number one running back. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast by checking out our website, Locked on Seahawks. 
Bet.com. Coming up on our Wednesday show, there's plenty of activity going on around the NFL. A lot of high-priced veterans getting the axe. Teams looking to move players as teams scramble to get under a lowered salary cap before the start of free agency next month. Which of those players may be the most likely candidates for the Seahawks to pursue and sign as free agents. Plus, we'll also continue our position-by-position breakdown back on the defensive side of the football. We'll look at outside linebackers, plenty of potential movement coming up for the Seahawks at that position group. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks!